We're now going to open God's word with a reading from Leviticus 1, which Kai will read. So the reading this morning is from Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the, tent, to the entrance of the tent of, the meet, of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift is a burnt offering, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side, in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Uh, thanks, Kai. I really should have done a kid's sheet today, uh, with one really simple instruction, draw a picture uh, from today's uh, Bible reading. That could have uh, been some fun be good if you can keep your Bible open there at Leviticus 1. Uh, that's what we're going to be thinking through this morning. And as we do that, let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we want to thank you that we can have this time now to have your word open in front of us and to consider what you are uh, saying to us. Lord, sometimes we struggle uh, with these passages. We wonder what on earth uh, you could be teaching us today. And so, Lord, we do ask for the work of your Holy Spirit uh, in my speaking and our listening and our understanding uh, that we might uh, learn from you so that we might follow Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Now, I have a suspicion that Leviticus chapter 1 has an awful lot to answer for. I would like a dollar for every read-through-the-Bible program 
that Leviticus 1 has absolutely derailed. I mean, we start pretty well, don't we? I mean, the book of Genesis, you know, that's reasonably easygoing. There's a few lists of genealogies to manage, but we're committed to reading through the Bible, and so we do that quite well. Exodus, well, that starts off really easy too. Who doesn't want to read about all those ancient Egyptians being smited left, right, and center? And even when we get to the law, well, we're committed to reading through the Bible, so we just plow on through. We do those 17 chapters of tabernacle instructions and building, and we make it. And then we hit Leviticus 1. And we read through it. And then we start flicking through the rest of the 30-odd chapters of Leviticus and realize we've got more of it to come. Everybody warned us that Leviticus would be hard, but we've thought, no, 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 I can do it without training, without preparation. I can make it through. And that's right where we give up. And we wonder if there's a brain of Christianity where you only have to read the New Testament. Or maybe it's possible that God could speak to me in dreams from now on because that would be a whole lot easier. But yet, here it is. In all its gory detail, We've had it read for us this morning, and we believe that all of Scripture is somehow profitable for us. That even this is good for us to know and understand and is beneficial for our lives. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago when we started this series looking at Old Testament law? We started by looking at Uh, We started by saying there are two ways in which the Old Testament laws and commandments, they are useful, helpful, profitable for us today. The first way is the case studies in the Ten Commandments. And that's what we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Those laws and commandments which spell out in detail how those commandments could apply to Israel. And then by looking at them through Jesus and through culture, We have seen how they shape our obedience, our response of thankfulness to God, even today. And that's where we've been the last couple of weeks. But we also said that there was another way, a second way, in which these Old Testament laws and commandments are useful for us as Christians today. And that is, they help us understand with more clarity and with greater depth the work of Jesus. Remember Hebrews chapter 10 described these laws as shadows of which Jesus is the reality. They help us understand with greater depth what Jesus has done for us. Particularly the sacrifices, the ceremonies, and the laws around purity. And that's what we're going to be doing today and next week. And that's what we're going to be doing here today in Leviticus chapter 1. Because Leviticus chapter 1 is all about what it takes to live in the presence of God. You see, we come to Leviticus chapter 1 through the book of Exodus. And as I mentioned before, The last 17 chapters of the book of Exodus are devoted to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, first of all instructions, and then the building of it. 
And right at the end of the book of Exodus, if you have your Bible, you might even just be able to see that that it's there in a snapshot. The cloud, the glory of the Lord, covers and fills the tabernacle. God comes and makes his home with Israel living amongst them. Now, in a way, we go, how's that possible? We believe that God is what we call omnipresent. God, God is present everywhere, and that's true. But God can make his presence known in a particular place, and that is now here in the tabernacle. But then the question comes, how can unholy people live then with a holy God? How is it possible for a holy God to make his home right in the middle of an unholy people? And that is exactly what the book of Leviticus is about. How an unholy people can live in relationship, in nearness to a holy God. And that's what we have starting here in Leviticus chapter 1 with the instructions for burnt offerings. Now, there are several types of offerings that are going to be mentioned in the, in the next couple of chapters. There's grain offerings, there's guilt offerings, there's sin offerings, there's uh, yeah, a, a bunch of different ones. But the burnt offerings comes first. And it's probably because it is, out of all of the offerings and the sacrifices, it is the most common. Listen to this. This is a list of times where burnt offerings were to be given. This is from the rest of the, the, the books around it. Uh, every day, in both the morning and in the evening, there was to be an additional burnt offering on the Sabbath. There was to be an additional burnt offering at the beginning of each month. There was to be an additional burnt offering at the Passover, and then along with the new grain at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Trumpet, on the sacred day of the seventh month, and at celebrations of each new moon. Not only that, burnt offerings were to be done with guilt offerings, sin offerings, free will offerings, sheaf offerings, and new grain offerings. It was required every time for an act of cleansing. It was to be given every time after childbirth, for leprosy, for male and female discharges, for a Nazarite who came in contact with a dead body, defiled by failure to obey, purification and consecration of Aaron and the Levites. There's a whole lot of burnt offerings going on here. This offering is really central to Israel's life and its worship. So what is going on? Why is it so important? Well, as we read through it, you probably realize that we actually got the same instructions given three times throughout this passage. There's the instructions for when you do a whole burnt offering of a bull, and then for one of the flocks, so either sheep or goats, and then finally for those who want a whole burnt offering of birds, for doves and uh, pigeon, turtle doves and pigeons. And they probably vary depending on um, the wealth of the person making the offering. And each of those times, the offering, there are slight differences, and they go with the different animals that are being done, but then there is a commonality to all of them. And I want to just really briefly highlight seven things that stand out in each of these offerings. And the first one is this, is that these burnt offerings are God-given. You notice that in chapters, verses 1 and 2? God calls Moses into the tent of meeting 
And then God gives the instructions for how the burnt offerings are to be performed. This is not Israel saying, hey, how should we live with God? What if we burnt up a whole lot of animals? Maybe that would work. This is not Israel looking around at other nations and saying, hey, they do sacrifices. What if, what if we do the same? This is God himself giving instructions for how people are to live with and to approach him. He's giving them. Second thing to notice, these are primarily individual offerings. You notice that in verse 2, how, how it set it up? It says, when any one of you brings an offering. This is not a communal offering. This is not something that the priest does on behalf of the nation as a whole. This is an individual offering to be brought. And not only is it very individual, it's very personal. Did you notice that as we were bring, bringing, reading through it? You bring your animal into the tabernacle, in through the gates and towards the tent of meeting. You, you lead it in yourself. You are responsible for laying your own hands on the head of the animal. You are responsible for killing it, except for the birds, uh, which I don't understand why. Uh, but you have to cut the throat of that animal yourself. The priest helps you with some of it, but you are responsible for taking the skin off the bull and for chopping it up. And the priest helps you by putting those pieces on the top of the altar to be burnt up. You literally end up with blood on your hands at the end of it. You are personally involved in this gory process. And we'll come to a reason for that in a minute. Third thing to notice, they are pure offerings. You see that? You don't go, you don't go around to your herd and you say, because I do this all the time, uh, you don't go out to your herd and you say, that goat there, that's about to cark it. I'll, I'll, I'll bring that one in. It's no good to me anyway. Or that one was born with a little bit of a defect. And we'll, we'll, we'll give that one to God. No, this is to be a male without defect or blemish. It is to be a perfect pure offering. And you notice that when they, they put it on, they, they had to wash both the entrails and wash the legs of the animals. That's because they would, had to get rid of all the excrement, all the poo, uh, for want of a better word, off the animal, because the animal had to be offered as a pure offering to God without anything defiled or wrong about it. Fourth thing to notice, it's a representative offering. And so as you, you, you bring it in, you lay your hands on the head of your bull, your goat, or your sheep. And it says there, um, and it shall be accepted for him. Th that process of laying hands on means that that animal now represents you before God. God now looks at that animal in your place. And that's because, fifthly, it's an atonement offering. That's what it says there uh, in verse 4 and then, then again further on down. 
to make atonement for him. Atonement is the payment for sin to restore a relationship. This animal represents the sacrificer in their place, taking the penalty for sin in the place of the sacrificer so that relationship with God, broken and destroyed because of sin, can be restored once again. Sixth thing to notice, it is a whole offering. You bring this animal in and you are saying goodbye to it forever. Every single part of it is placed on the altar. Every single part of it is burnt up there in the flames. There's no sharing of the meat with the priest. There's no communal meal of the barbecue afterwards. Uh, All of it is completely burnt up and gone for good. It must be done completely. And seventh thing to notice about all these, these burnt offering is that it's a pleasing offering. It's pleasing to God. Now, this is picture language, but the idea is that the, the smoke of the offering rises. And it's not because God loves the smell of a good barbecue. I mean, that's not what it is. But in, in picture language, God has the aroma of the animal and he is pleased. He is pleased with the sacrifice and he is pleased with the one who made the sacrifice. Now, let's kind of throw this all together. What's what's going on here? This burnt offering is an offering of restoration, of renewed relationship with God. It's not necessarily for a specific sin. It's not like I committed this sin, therefore I have to do this burnt offering. There are, there are other offerings for that. It is an offering which recognizes our sinfulness. That we are born in sin. That we have hearts that are steeped in sin, that keep wanting to rebel. And that sinful people can't live in the presence of God. Sinful people simply can't exist with a holy God, but that God is graciously dealing with it. He is providing the way for sinful people to live in his presence. You see, in a sense, every time the individual went through, through their act of sacrifice, they were going through the drama which directed their hearts in an appropriate way to be acceptable to God. You see, the idea was not that you were thinking about how your football team the night before while you went through the act of slaughtering an animal. It wasn't the act itself, but going through the drama was to direct the heart and the mind of the sacrificer to what was necessary. And so as you led your animal into the tabernacle, you approached the tent of meeting, walking towards where God had made his presence known. This reminder, we live in the presence of God. As you laid your hand on the animal and as you slit its throat and you cut it up and your hands were covered in blood, 
It was to be a reminder that we are sinful people. And our sin brings a punishment. And that punishment is death. And as the the sacrificer stood there and smelt the smell of the burning animal and watched the smoke rise, it was a reminder that we have a gracious, loving God who in spite of our sinfulness and our shortcoming, graciously accepts us and invites us to live in his presence. And God was pleased, not not just because of the sacrifice that was done, but because of the contrite, the sorrowful heart of the one who was offering the sacrifice. A couple of things that this is not. Firstly, uh, this is not meant to be a way of earning God's favor. You've got to remember, we can't stress this enough, where sacrifices come in the history of God's dealing with people. These come after God has rescued Israel, after he took the first step, after he called them out of Israel to be his very own and made them his own. That's when he gives the the sacrifices, after he has graciously already rescued his people. Secondly, I already mentioned this, it's not simply a ritual. It wasn't meant to be something that people just did while thinking about something out. You couldn't do it with your headphones in listening to to Apple Music. Uh, This was not just an act. It was to be a condition of the heart. And thirdly, and of course that you know, you know this is coming, uh, it's not meant to be final. Uh, this is not ultimately the way in which God enables people to live in his presence. It ultimately is pointing forward to something else. It's ultimately pointing forward to a greater sacrifice. It's pointing forward to Jesus. Why don't we still have these wonderful sacrifices every Sunday? It's because the RTC won't allow us to have a fire um, up the front here. No, of of course not. We, We don't have them because we don't need them anymore. Because there has been a once and for all final sacrifice that this one was pointing to. That was the shadow. But in Jesus, we now have the reality. Think about those seven features of the burnt sacrifice. Firstly, it's God-given. Jesus comes because God the Father sends him. God takes the initiative. God is the one who brings the sacrifice. And there's even a subtle... A subtle difference here, we don't offer it, God himself offers his only son. Jesus himself willingly offers himself as the sacrifice for us. Secondly, it's individual. Christ dies for a people, Christ dies to create a people, The ultimate in in God's plan is restoring a community of of people together. 
But God does that by adding individuals. The sacrifice of Jesus is not just a sacrifice for a group. It's a sacrifice for each individual person. And so that you and I can actually say, Christ died for me. But going along with that, it also requires an individual response. It's not enough to simply be a part of the people who trust and follow Jesus, to come along and be associated with them. It requires repentance and faith for those from those who are going to be beneficial for. Third thing we saw before, it's pure. Jesus is the ultimate pure sacrifice. Why is it that the gospel writers insist on highlighting the sinless life of Christ? Why do they go into detail about his temptations, but his refusal to fall into sin? Uh, why does 1 Peter uh, talk about uh, without, being without fault? Because it requires a perfect, pure Sinless sacrifice. To be in the place of many, the sacrifice needs to be holy. Only a pure sacrifice can meet the demands of God's justice. Four, it's representative. He dies where we should. He dies not just for sin in a general sense, he is sacrificed, he suffers and dies in our place. He suffers and experiences what you and I deserve to. He does that for us. Fifth, it's a sacrifice of atonement. The result of his sacrifice is that our relationship with God is restored. It's renewed. God now looks at us as holy, perfect people because He looks at us through the work of Christ. Sixth, it's a whole offering. You ever wonder why, why the Gospel writers make a big deal of the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the cross? When, when Jesus prays, if it's possible, take this cup, this cup away from me. Because it wants to show, it needs to highlight the whole willing sacrifice of Christ. That even though he struggles with it and wrestles with it, he completely gives of himself in our place and for us. And number seven, it's a pleasing sacrifice. God is, the Father is pleased with His Son through the sacrifice that He has given. But not only that, He is pleased with His people. That through the sacrifice of Jesus, God delights in you and me. God takes pleasure in His people because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Now sometimes we wonder, don't we? 
wouldn't it be better if you and I had a more hands-on kind of faith, like enacting faith? Maybe not like big bulls and goats, but what if we kind of got to sacrifice little animals, I don't know, squirrels or pet rabbits or things like that, and and we we could have in our hands an enactment of the sacrifice that is necessary? Would that work better? The answer is absolutely not. Because we have the far greater sacrifice of Jesus. And that sacrifice means everything to us. We are a people of the cross. A people who delight in the cross. Who find hope in the cross. Who are renewed and restored daily by the cross. Because this is where we can accept, we are accepted by a holy God to belong to him and to live in his presence. Why is it that when we read through the New Testament and we read the letters that Paul and others wrote, they are constantly referring to the cross of Christ? Because that's the center of all of it. It's on focusing, meditating, dwelling on the cross of Christ that we realize and we remember our own sinfulness. That we are broken people who in and of ourselves cannot live in the presence of God. But we are reminded again of how gracious and compassionate God is. That he's provided a way for us to know him and to dwell in his presence, to live in his presence both now and forever. He's provided a way for our sin to be forgiven. Laid on his son for us all. Never, never be ashamed of the cross. Never underplay its value and its role and its centrality. If you want to encourage another another believer, if we want to spur one another on, we point to the cross. If you want to highlight how gracious and how good God is and how he welcomes sinners into his family, Point out the cross. Because it is here that God has dealt with our sin. It is here that God has made us his own and invited us into his presence forever. Let's pray to him, shall we? Loving Father, uh, we want to thank you this morning. We want to thank you this morning for the sacrifice of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Thank you that he willingly went to the cross in our place to suffer the punishment that was ours so that we might be set free and belong to you. Lord God, we do pray that we would never move on from the cross of Jesus. We pray that it would be central to our lives, to our life as a church, to our witness, to our encouragement, to our discipleship, to all of it. We pray, Lord, that as we focus on it, you would renew us and strengthen us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.